People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. And we have the great pleasure and thrill of interviewing a young debut author from Nigeria, Oyinkan Braithwaite. The book that's just come out is My Sister, the Serial Killer. Oyinkan, welcome to Chai FM and Johannesburg, South Africa. Thank you. I'm going to ask you to introduce yourself to our listeners in your own words and on your own terms. So my name is Oyinkan Braithwaite, and I'm 30, and I live in Nigeria. Um, I like to write, obviously. I like to draw. Um, and I'm a massive anime junkie, so I'm working on Japanese animation. And, ooh, I don't know, I'm uh, head of drama at my church, uh, which I enjoy doing when it doesn't frustrate me. I think that I, I can't think of anything else to say. Oh, I have four dogs. No, two, so I want to pass. I have three dogs at home. Where, where in Nigeria do you live? Big metropolis. There's a fortune of things happening in Lagos all the time, and you make that part of the setting for your book. The title of the book is such an it's, it's such a, an attention grabbing title. My sister, the serial killer. Can you tell us the basic storyline without giving too much of the the plot away? Just set it up for us. Um, yes. So it's about two sisters. The protagonist is the oldest sister, Corey and she has to deal with her younger sister's unfortunate um, sort of unfortunate habit of killing her boyfriend. Um, and the older sister, as the older sister, wants to protect her younger sister and often um, is supposed to help her younger sister clean up these murders, make them disappear. <laughs> In a nutshell, that's what the, that's the premise of the book. But for all of those who gotta go out buy and buy the book and read it, there's so much more than just the older sister protecting her younger sister. Oyinkan, this is a debut novel. What surprised me, impressed me, and as an African living in Africa made me so proud, is that every single list of books to read in 2018 that was published in newspapers, in magazines, and on blogs, and then in many, many lists of books of the year. There was Oyinkan Braithwaite's My Sister, the Serial Killer, mentioned amongst the books you have to read. How did this happen? How did it happen that I got on the list? On so many lists of books to read, both before the book came out and now at the end of the year when everyone's compiling. Okay, before the... There's so much I thought I knew about the publishing industry, and when I actually um, became a part of it, I realized how much I didn't know, and that actually surprised me as well. I didn't realize that a book could garner so much attention way before it came out. It was strange to me, and at some point, people around me were convinced my book was out. They were like, you know, where can we get the book? Where can we get the book? And I, I was like, it's not out yet. Um, and I think sometimes some people didn't believe me. Um, but it was weird. At some point, I actually started to feel as though it had already come out. And I really enjoyed it. I think, um, you know, it's really as a result of um, the, the efforts that my publisher um 
you know, Double Day and Atlantic, I think the effort that they put into pushing the book, um, you know, they put it in the right hands and, you know, they did their very, very best by it. So I think that's why it got the attention it did. And how did you feel with all that attention? Um, I can't. I, I don't think I can ever do justice to how I feel, how I felt, how I feel now. Um, I, this is something I've wanted to do all my life. I've been writing since I was a child and, um, so it's really a dream come true situation. It's, it's exactly the thing that I was praying for. And, um, I mean, not the, not even, see, that's the thing. I wasn't praying for this. I was just praying to get published. I just wanted to get published. I wanted to, you know, to do well and be able to earn a reasonable income from um, from my book. And this, so this attention and the love I've gotten and the support I've gotten, I wasn't expecting, and I am so grateful for. Have you been on author tours to America or to the UK? Oh, no, um, I haven't been to this. I haven't been to the States. I've been to... I go to London often, so I've been there to sort of meet the publishers and all of that. But I haven't, the book hasn't come out in the UK yet, so I will be going um, to the UK in January. Um, I've been to the Netherlands, though, because there's a Dutch edition of the book, so I've been to the Netherlands to, uh, to do uh, a festival there. I'm just so excited for your success. This, this book has just garnered so much attention. And it's not even necess- it's not even released all around the world yet. So when the when the bomb explodes, when the publicity bomb explodes over London, there'll be an even bigger wave of harp around Nigerian writers and specifically you yourself, or Yinkan Braithwaite. A book that's so powerful, even it's before incredible. a book like this that's so powerful, even before it's been released. There has to be some story behind how you came to write the book. What was the initial catalyst, the inspirational kernel for the book, My Sister, the Serial Killer? So it's sort of two things. One, I um, in around 2007 or so, um, I was reading up on the Black Widow Spider, and which who is a, uh, for people who don't know, it's a creature that... Um, you know, when the, when the female and the male meet, if, um, I believe the female is slightly bigger than the male, and if the female is hungry afterwards, she will eat the male, um, you know, and I thought that was hilarious, and I kind of was playing with that. I used, I played with that idea several times, you know, I have a poem about it, um, so I played with that idea a few times before this book came along, because obviously it was a long time ago that I discovered this. Um, so that's, this idea of women killing men is an idea that I've, you know, I've enjoyed playing with in the past. It wasn't new to me when I started writing this book. And um, when I started writing this book, I was in a kind of panic because I hadn't been writing and I was going to turn 30 the following year. So I told myself that I had to write something and I had submitted to agents and so on and so forth. So I didn't plan on submitting this particular book. Um, this book I use more of as an, a writing exercise, but um, in the end, I did submit it, and um, and yeah, and, and everything sort of happened from there. And a lot has happened. It's been like a it must have been a roller coaster ride for you from finishing the book till the modern to this very moment. 
oh, it has been. It, it all happened very sort of, like, once it got in uh, my agent's hands, things happened really, really quickly. And, again, she's been fantastic. Um, so, yeah. We are in conversation with Oyin Ken Braithwaite, a Nigerian author. The book that's just been published, and it's going to be released releasing in a number of countries around the world shortly, is My Sister the Serial Killer. We are in conversation with Oyinkan Braithwaite, the author of My Sister the Serial Killer. The book is published in the UK and South Africa by Atlantic Books. Oyinkan, it's such a such a thrill to have you on the station and to be in conversation with you. Thank you. As Ni- as Nigerian as this novel is, it is also very universal. You deal with themes and life experience and the life experiences of your protagonists and they all resonate and they will resonate with people all around the world. Can you, firstly, can you highlight some of the themes that you have, you felt were important to include in the book? Yes, so one of the things I, I started off with, something that was very important to me when I was writing this, um, was the this idea of how society treats beauty. Um, so, you know, I've always thought that um, that society had a very strange relationship with beauty and um, sort of treated beauty as though it was a value in the same way that um, humility might be a value and the same way that honesty might be a value. Um, as though it wasn't just, you know, a matter of faith, how you look. Um, so I, you know, and how women were treated, especially women, women were treated based on how they looked, how much that could affect who you became and what your character was like. Um, so that was something that was really important to me when I started writing the book. Um, also, I made it, conscious decision to increase social media in my work, which normally I, I don't do, but I knew that it was supposed to be a contemporary story and, you know, it was about women in their uh, mid to late 20s and, you know, it was weird to write about something like that and not talk about social media. Um, so I, I wanted to get a more social media and get a clear um, how suspicious social media can be um, and you know, how how people represent themselves in a particular way when they're on social media. Um, so those are some of the things I thought about, I think, when I went into it. Then let's spend a little bit of time with your characters, getting to know them a little bit better, especially for those listeners who are going to go and buy the book. They need to know in whose company they're going to be spending time. Karede, um, I might be mispronouncing, Karidi, Ayula, Dr. Tade or Tade Mukhtar and any other characters that are very close to your heart. Can you speak a bit about them? Um, okay, I think uh, I think I like closer to my heart. Um, I mean, I probably emphasize with, with Corey Day more than I do Ayala, but I enjoyed writing Ayala. I, I enjoyed uh, getting to know her. Um, I Every time she came into the book and she opened her mouth, I had the best time. Um, just, you know, trying to think about what she would say and how she thought and how frequent she is. I really enjoyed that. Um, for me as a writer, she was a breath of fresh air. Um, 
so they, but so um you know as a character I write very sort of she doesn't sit down and consider her actions. She's very unaware that she could face consequences. You know, she lives this life as someone who's beautiful and knows she's been beautiful and has, has used her beauty as currency and um and at the same time does the most horrific things. But because she's childlike and she's beautiful and she she's otherwise maybe innocent, you don't it's hard for the other characters in the novel to put two and two together. Um you know, Corrida is a character who um, I understand somewhat because I am the eldest sibling in my family and um, I, you know, I enjoyed exploring how she struggled with this, you know, with having to go through life knowing that she was unattractive, knowing that, you know, she didn't have the most advantages um, and also having to go out of her way to protect someone who basically was given everything in life, you know. Um, Kade is the young gentleman who who uh, created the older sister's love, but who ends up courting the younger sister. Um, and it's been interesting people's responses to him as a as a character. I didn't think he was all that bad, but people really hate him. Um, there is Mupa who uh, who's in a coma, who Kade confides in. The the auntie who lives in. And then I suppose there's the father who's. Yes, the father. And, and then also for some, the, the auntie who's, who, who dictates to the family what to do, even though she lives in Dubai. I mean, she's also, you know, she's the father's sister and she has very, a very sort of low, um, she has, she has no moral compass and, you know, is more concerned because these girls love her when they really don't and it's very quick to give them advice they don't want. Another aspect of the the universe, the, how universal the book is, what feedback have you received from readers and reviewers? And were there any things that the reviewers said that took you quite by surprise? So I definitely have an example. Okay, so I read the review the other day and someone um, kind of called me out on touching on racism but not delving into it and he was using um so there's a character there's a um there's a part in the book which I'm trying to think if this is a spoiler or not. I don't think it's a spoiler. So there's a character in the book who okay, I won't just say who the character is, but there is a character in the book who I refer to as yellow and I compare her skin color to a banana and it turns out that the reviewer thought she was Asian but she wasn't. Um, so that kind of took me by surprise because she was, she was a black character. She was just a very black skinned black character. Um, you know, but she was a black character nonetheless. So I thought it was interesting that someone had read it and seen it. Um, so that, that's probably the one that took me by surprise the most. Um, and yeah, I noticed some people don't, are not too sure of the book because the characters aren't necessarily like her girls. Which is okay. I don't think that it's, it's, it's I don't think that's uh, so much a con as it is just the way the truth is that people who are generally one hundred percent good all the time, they will be they will find out things about people that will make you like them a little bit less it's it's just life. 
We are in conversation with Oyinkan Braithwaite, the Nigerian author of My Sister, the Serial Killer. In South Africa, the book's published by Atlantic Books. We'll be back with more conversation straight after this ad break. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is 101.9 High FM. It's People of the Book. It's our weekly book show. We have the great thrill and pleasure of being in conversation with Oyinkan Braithwaite, the Nigerian author of My Sister, the Serial Killer, published by Atlantic Books here in South Africa. Oyinkan, a very important part of the book is the very dark humor. Where did it come from? And also, how much fun did you have when you wrote this book? Okay, I think it's two things. I actually didn't set out to be funny. But there are, I think part of the humor came from the fact that it's a Nigerian story. Because Nigerian people, as far as I'm concerned, are hilarious. Like, you know, when you sit down and you think about some of the things people say, some of the things people get up to, it's actually, you know, it's a, it's a, and because I think because we go through so much here sometimes, um, people use humor as a way to just survive some of these things and um, so there were some things in my book that were funny simply because they were Nigerian things it wasn't me necessarily creating as much as it was me observing that certain things happen um, but also I think it was funny because um, I was talking about stuff that should have been treated in a particular way and you see it being treated in a completely different way um, and it's all just very deadpan and you know and um, people find it funny so people find you have a dark sense of humor and it's also quite subversive you've turned human courtship into a really like the praying mantis uh, form of reproduction you you you've you've and even the 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 relationship between the sisters you've really made it quite subversive in the book i think that also adds to the dark humor yeah um i don't know you know they say that truth is stranger than fiction i think that um you know with siblings and the relationship between siblings often it can be a love-hate relationship and um you know, you can go from completely wanting to strongly your sibling one second to, you know, wanting to be there for them the next. Um, like, so there's so much of what people find you know, that I just thought was just life here. Like, even, um, the last, there's a scene with a, with a, with an official, um, where the official steps created the order to stay in traffic. And people find that scene really funny, but for me, that's a typical day in Lagos. Um, for me, that's my reality, and it's, it's not funny when it's actually happening, but it can be funny when you look back on it. For the next question, I'd like to focus a little bit more widely on Nigerian writers. At this moment in time, Nigeria is at the same position India was in the late, in the 1980s. The empire writing back, or as, as, as Time magazine had on its cover. There's so many great books now coming from Nigeria, but specifically from female writers. Uh, I, I've interviewed, uh, no, I haven't interviewed, but I've reviewed the book Welcome to Lagos by Chibundu Onuzo. Um, Helen Oyeyemi's got a new book coming out next year, and she's also always on those to read lists, as is Chimamandan Ngozi Adichie, there are so many other writers from Nigeria. This is 
not just isolated books. It's an it's it's a cultural phenomenon. Why is it happening now, and why female writers? Um, that's a tough question. Um, my writing, you know, the funny thing is that I actually was talking to another writer one day, and I told her that I just feel like the writers coming from Nigeria um, are majorly women. Um, you know, like obviously there's a there's a mix, but the people who are sort of drawing attention and um, uh, the majority of them are women. And, you know, she said she couldn't see it and she gave me, um, and to be fair, there are males also doing very well. There's Leia Hindley, who's got fantastic crime fiction. Um, you know, Benokri's out there doing great things. Um, so, you know, she did name men, but I have, but at the end of the day, I feel like the women are still garnering more attention and we ha- it was good because she couldn't see what I was saying but now you brought it up so I don't really know who if it's just that um, I think maybe it might be partly, it might partly be where the world is right now right I think the world is looking for fiction written by women and so maybe um, the women in Nigeria are enough to be able to take advantage of that. And also, I think that the women in Nigeria have stories that are sort of burning inside of them. You know, we've been through, um, we live in a patriarchal society, we, you know, often women are not necessarily doing a voice. So, I think it's, it's, it's an endeavor in freedom somewhat to write these stories and they end up being powerful stories because you're writing about something that's very near and dear to you. Um, that's what to say, like, I haven't really, I don't really feel like I've suffered depression, but there are things that I do experience that are very, very unique to me as a woman. You know, like, for example, the other day I was up by an official, and at some point during the conversation, they asked me to call my husband, and this despite the fact that I'm not married, but, like, they just decided, or a man has to sort of, you know, if, if she doesn't have any cash on her, she has to, like, get her husband to interview and nobody was able to ask, like, I had to go and explain and convince them that I wasn't married. Um, so I think there are some things that are very unique to us as women, and people are interested in hearing these stories now. The movement of writers in Nigeria, mainly women who are writing, which you, fought, you are part of that wave, to a more personal book question, what books do you read and which authors? I'm a massive Robin Hobb fan and she writes fantasy. I'm actually big on fantasy. Surprising season, but I'm big on fantasy. Um, so I, I really love Robin Hobb. I not read Anne Rice in a while, but I love her writing style. Um, that's something I sort of aspire to. You know, she writes prose like it's poetry. Um, you know, she writes really beautifully and I, you know, I appreciate that. I like, um, I read a lot of crime as well. Um, I read, oh, another fantasy that I just discovered who I really like, Patrick Lester. Um, I like fantasy that's kind of different, that stands out, you know, they don't just get their typical characters and all of that, the same shape. Um, yeah, and I read a lot of um, crime as well. For African literature, one of my favorite books is um, The Secret Life of Baba Fiji by Lala Shumi. And then, 
from books that you read, are you currently working on a new book that we can look forward to in the near future? Um, I am working on something else, but it turns out it, I thought it'd be easier to learn a second book, turns out it's harder. So I don't know, but I, I am working on something. So we'll see how it goes. And then the, the last question, we touched on this earlier. This book was published in the USA by Doubleday, which is quite a prestigious publisher, and in the UK and the Commonwealth by Atlantic Books, which is also a prestigious publisher, publishing house. How did you manage to get your manuscript into the hands of these two publishing houses' editors and that they ran with your book with so much gusto and so much passion? There must be a story, connect, you know, how you made that connection. Okay, um, basically, in 2016, I was shortlisted for the Commonwealth Short Story Prize. Um, and at that time, I was, cons- I, you know, I, got, I got an email from an agency in London called A. Alexander. And basically telling me that they had read the story that I submitted and that they loved it. And if I had anything that I wanted to send them, they'd be, you know, they'd be willing to read it. And, you know, that completely blew my mind. And I didn't have anything at the time. And I ended up not sending anything until about a year later, um, which was just funny. Um, not At the time, I didn't think of it anything would come up it, like I said I was in Mozilla for one um, initially and I just didn't want them to forget about me but um, my agent told me to, that she liked it that I should go back to some more work on it and I did and she signed me on she was the agent who got the um, the publishers and who got the film deal and who got the uh, you know the translation rights they sorted all of that out and um, she goes so been Super passionate about the book. She actually named the book. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. We have just finished our conversation with Oyinkan Braithwaite, the Nigerian author of My Sister, the Serial Killer. The book is available in South Africa. It's published by Atlantic Books. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a very dark, it's a dark, um, story about two sisters, the one who finishes off her boyfriends by killing them, and the other sister, Ayola, who always ends up having to clean up her her more beautiful sister's mess. This is uh, People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. To remain relevant to current events, we're going to look at the American government. And this is so current and so relevant because of the American, the partial American government closed down. Uh, that is the result of this tug of war between the Democratic Party and President Trump over the $5 billion wall that Mexico is not going to pay for. And President Trump wants the American government to release money so that it can build this wall. The book that we're looking at isn't about this government shutdown. It's about the American government. It's the new best-selling book by Michael Lewis. He is the author of Lies Poker, 
the um, the big short, which was made into a film, his dual biography on two Israeli psychologists that was called The Undoing Project, and uh, his new book is The Fifth Risk. And what he's looking at is the functions that the American government plays in American society and what impact Trump is having on the American government. This is quite an eye-opening book. The, the, the American government employs about 22 million people. The American population is about 330 million people. So about 6% of the American population is employed by the government on state on, on local, state, and federal levels in order to help run the entire state of the United States of America. What Michael Lewis wants to do is he wants to highlight some of the functions of some of the big departments, governmental departments based in Washington, and show how they underpin American life and what impact Trump has had on them. The morning after Trump was elected president, the people who ran the United States Department of Energy, an agency that deals with some of the most powerful risks facing humanity, waited to welcome the incoming administration's transition team. Nobody appeared. And across the U.S. government, the same thing happened. Absolutely nothing. Now, what happens in America is that once each party's nominees for the presidential race have been identified, the American government releases money to both of those candidates to start setting up transition teams. They give an office space in Washington, and then they have to hire heads of this transition team who will then find people to run the different American governmental departments. And there's the Department of Energy, there's the Department of Agriculture, the Department of Commerce, there's many, many departments across Washington from where the federal government runs its programs across the entire country and sometimes in, across the entire world. The transition is a big deal because the people who head these departments are political appointees made by the current president. The handover from one president's people to the next president's people needs to be as smooth as possible. And people who run these departments have to have intimate knowledge of the fields that they're going to be overseeing. It can't just be given to a friend. The Department of Energy does many things. One of the things they do is they control America's nuclear weapon stockpile. Something else that they do is places that became polluted with nuclear waste in the creation of the American stockpile have to be kept secure and cleaned. So they do that. Something else that they do is they track, they try to track from around the world any trade in nuclear material, and then they try to make sure that that ends up with the American government and not in the hands of some terrorist or in the hands of some rogue state. These are all functions that are vital for America and for the world. And on the day after the presidential election, the, 
the transition teams for every department are supposed to come and meet the current team who will be leaving in two months and that there's a two-month window of opportunity for handover. And after the 2016 presidential victory resulting in President Trump, no department across America actually had a transition team from Trump's campaign coming and meeting them. And for days and then weeks and then months, they just waited until the new administration came in and all the heads just got up, left their offices and went back to their normal civilian life and there was no one to take over the running of these major departments. Or if there was somebody, they would come in for a few hours for their handover, for the transfer of responsibilities. And this is the beginning of the undermining, the hollowing of the American state that Michael Lewis talks about so passionately and eruditely in his new book, The Fifth Risk. We'll be back with a little bit more risks right after this ad break. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. If you think back to school shopping, remember it as a drag, think again. Think Walton's back to school. Walton's has anything and everything in one convenient place. With great deals on school essentials and a variety of quality brands, your shopping will be done in no time because they do it for you. Avoid the rush and get to Walton's now. Shop online at backtoschool.co.za or visit one of their countrywide stores where helpful staff will pack your list and trading hours have been extended. Now that's convenience. Bid this Walton's. It's sorted. Visit our new stores at Norwood Mall and Morningside Shopping Centre. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. We're currently looking at a very topical book. It's non-fiction. It's Michael Lewis's The Fifth Risk. It's looking at Trump's impact uh, on the American federal government. Just one of the many things in the book is that the, the Department of Agriculture oversees the collection of weather information. There are hundreds of stations across, across the United States and then hundreds more around the world continuously sending data, updating the American government's department, the Weather Service, the National Weather Service, about weather conditions. The American government isn't allowed to monetize this data, so they make it available to private companies that then package it and sell it on. One of those companies is known to everybody because it's on our smartphones, AccuWeather. Now, the person who started and heads up AccuWeather obviously would prefer the American government's data to all to come to him and not be publicly available. But the American government is paid for by taxpayers, so all the data that they collect, especially in weather, is available on their websites. Trump's appointee to oversee the National Weather Service is the head of AccuWeather. Now, if that is not a conflict of interest, a person in a government position wants to limit the public's access to a publicly funded service so that he can monetize it, then 
you'd be that's not a conflict of interest then you wouldn't find anyone anyway you wouldn't find a conflict of interest anywhere now, that's just one of many many stories that Michael Lewis tells in the fifth risk the other part of the book is these unbelievably generous people who go into government service because they want to do good for the world they want to change the world they want to access the data that the American government has built up over decades and use it to improve the American 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 society. But you need a president with vision, you need someone who knows how to deploy the best people in the positions where they can have the most impact on society. And in Michael Lewis's opinion, that's not happening. He's written this book as an impassioned plea to the American people to realize that their state is being hollowed out by a man who doesn't necessarily understand the difference between business and government. Government really is the provider of those services that business doesn't provide, amongst many other things that government does do as well. One of the ironies that is highlighted in the book is that in the big debates in America and the cultural wars and the ideological wars, big government, small government, and this push for small government from the right wing, which has been adopted across you know, the heartland of America, especially in rural areas, is that most small towns, farming towns in America, only remain operational because of government money that's been pumped into these towns basic services that keep them going and now those people living in these towns all vote Trump so they're voting for a president whose stated ambition is to cut government funding for the Department of Agriculture which if that does happen their towns will close down and they'll all become refugees in the big cities because they can't afford to live without government services. So it's just a, 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 such an irony, such a, a sense of the, the hand, the baby hand biting the, the baby biting the hand that rocks the cradle. That's just one of many, many things that Michael Lewis puts across in his book, The Fifth Risk. Michael Lewis is the best-selling author of books such as Liar's Poker, um, The New New Thing, The Undoing Project, the big short. He really has his pulse on American society and uh, on American politics. And this is a very, very interesting read. Now, going from that book, The Fifth Risk, to Ben McIntyre's new book, The Spy and the Traitor. When you see a shout-out on the cover of a book, and John LaCorre says, the best true spa story I have ever read. So then you also want to read the book. On a warm July evening in 1985, a middle-aged man stood on the pavement of a busy avenue in the heart of Moscow, holding a plastic carrier bag. In his grey suit and tie, he looked like any other Soviet citizen. The bag alone was mildly conspicuous, printed with the red logo of Safeway, the British supermarket. The man was a spy for MI6, a senior KGB officer for more than a decade. He had supplied his British spy masters with a stream of priceless secrets from deep within the Soviet intelligence machine. No spy had done more to damage the KGB. The Safeway bag was a signal. 
to activate his escape plan to be smuggled out of the Soviet Union. So he began one of the boldest and most extraordinary episodes in the history of espionage. In his book, The Spy and the Traitor, Ben McIntyre reveals the tale of betrayal, duplicity and raw courage that changed the course of the Cold War forever. Um, the book was reviewed in The Economist before the, the, this trade paperback issue, uh, edition was, was printed. So we've got a shout out on the back from The Economist as well. A real life thriller as tense as John Le Carre novels or even Ian Fleming's. Now, I can wax lyrical about this book because it is one of those true spa stories that are even more fantastic than the best spa thriller. But what I want to do is I want to read from the Washington Post's review. It was reviewed by David Ignatius, who is a columnist covering foreign affairs for the Washington Post, and he also is the author of 10 spa thrillers. So from one practitioner of the trade reviewing the book by another, it's interesting to see what he says. As soon as the ad break is over, we will be back looking at a review of The Spy and the Traitor by Ben McIntyre. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. We're talking about a book called The Spy and the Traitor by Ben McIntyre. John LaCorre said the best true spy story I have ever read, and it was shortlisted for the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction in 2018. The Spy and the Traitor arrives at a moment when the machinations of Russian intelligence, election peddling, internet manipulation, assassination by poison, are the subjects of almost daily news stories. Russia and its ex-KGB president seem brutally dominant in the intelligence sphere. Ben McIntyre offers a refreshing reversal of that theme. In this story, it's the Russians who get turned inside out by a British mole. It's the Kim Philby case in reverse. The subtitle of McIntyre's latest real-life spy thriller calls it the greatest espionage story of the Cold War. Like pretty much everything in this fine book, the description is accurate. The book narrates the astonishing tale of how British Britain's Secret Intelligence Service recruited a KGB officer named Oleg Gordievsky in 1974 and ran him as its agent for 11 years, as he rose to become the resident or station chief in London. Then in 1985, because of an appalling blunder by a jealous CIA, Gordievsky was exposed and recalled to Moscow to face almost certain death. The book converges on a final plot twist so implausible that it could only happen in real life. Gordievsky was exfiltrated across the Finnish border in the trunk of a car by a plucky MI6 officer and his wife and brought back to London for a secret hero's welcome from an adoring Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher. He survives today in a protected location in Britain and one suspects that he's quite careful about what doorknobs he's touching. This is the story of The Spy and the Traitor by Men McIntyre. It is a riveting account of a real spy and a Russian KGB spy who was a double agent working for the, for, for the British and how he was betrayed by an American spy, uh, Aldrich Amis, who for love of money, was prepared to betray 
Britain's greatest spy asset in the Soviet Union. And then to conclude, because we've only got time for one more book, even though I was hoping to get through three more, keeping in the spy thriller genre, here we're going into a fiction. The book is written by someone who's named Jonathan de Chalet. It was written in Hebrew originally, has been translated into English. But I said it's written by somebody who is called Jonathan de Chalet. That's because the name Jonathan de Chalet is a pseudonym of a former high-ranking member of the Israeli intelligence community. His books must pass a rigid vetting process, including the approval of the of Israel's governmental ministers' committee. De Chalet has translated into Hebrew the American novel uh, Sport and a Pastime by James Salter and also John Le Carre's autobiography The Pigeon Tunnel. When it comes to spa thrillers, you can't get away from John Le Carre. He's the standard that everyone's compared to. But Traitor is a book that also carries a lot of praises when it arrives in your hands, but it's also it's a great, great spa thriller. The book starts off in the mid-1980s with an Israeli politi- uh, a person who's involved in the Israeli government walking into the embassy, the American embassy in Rome. And he wants to speak to someone in the intelligence, someone in intelligence from the CIA. And he's introduced to a man and he says, I am on the make in Israel. I'm going to rise to the very top. But I want to forge a connection with America and I want to share intelligence with America. He's hedging his bets because one day he thinks he will then be able to retire secretly in America. What he doesn't realize is that the person he's spoken to who is in American intelligence is also a double agent and he's working he does, he's working for the East Germans. He doesn't inform the CIA of this Israeli potential asset. He informs his East German handler that there is this potential Israeli traitor who's prepared to share Israeli intelligence with the Americans. And what happens is... The East Germans, the Stasi, present themselves as Americans and they bring this Israeli into their, into, in, into their, under their control and Israeli intelligence secrets are now shared with the East, the East Germans. Then just before the fall of communism, the Russians, the KGB, force the Stasi, the East Germans, out of their position as the handler of this Israeli asset, and they take over. But the Israeli, for, not for one second, suspects that he's reporting to anyone besides the CIA. Fast forward to 2018, the Israelis somehow realize that there is a traitor in their midst, They've somehow uncovered the fact that a high-ranking Israeli is leaking secrets to the Soviet Union. And the whole book is how they 
attempt to uncover the identity of this traitor. It's great on spy uh, craft on, on how Israel deals with traitors. And as I said, the author's name isn't really Jonathan Dashelit. It's a pseudonym. Everything in this book had to be vetted by the Israeli government before it could be printed. It's the first book that Jonathan Dashelit has written. He already has a second one, which is going to be available pretty soon, A Spy in Exile, which continues one of the characters in Traitor's story into a new thriller. Fantastic reading. If you do like your espionage, we've given you two choices today. Michael Lewis's, sorry, The Spy and the Traitor by Ben McIntyre. That's nonfiction, then fiction within Israeli, with also, you know, Israeli intelligence traitor, but Jonathan Deshalet. We looked at Michael Lewis's The Fifth Risk, which is very topical in light of these American government's partial shutdown. And then we also had an interview with Nigerian author Oyikan Braithwaite, the author of My Sister, the Serial Killer. Until next week, good Shabbos and keep reading.